everyone, and welcome to MLS Assist, a podcast created to give insight into the tactical side of Major League Soccer. I'm your host, Joe Lowry, and this week's show is going to be just a little bit different than our normal episodes. Jordan and I are not going to be digging into tactics. Instead, I had the chance to talk with Elliot McKinley of American Soccer Analysis. Why has soccer been slow to buy into analytics? What are some advanced metrics that can help analyze the game? How is MLS doing on the data collection and analysis front? Elliot and I, well, 99% Elliot, answer those questions and much, much more on this week's episode of MLS Assist. I'm here with Elliot McKinley, who is a contributor to American Soccer Analysis, the premier American soccer analytics website, and was a member of the 2018 U.S. Soccer Hackathon winning team. He's analyzed throw-ins like no other, popularized new data visualization methods, and most importantly, investigated Major League Soccer's goal of the week voting that always seems to go Atlanta United's way. Elliot, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm super excited to get the chance to sit down and talk with you. Finally, you and I have gone back and forth over the years, really the last couple of years and more recently trying to plan this episode. But I'm really interested and excited to dig into the analytical portion of soccer that really doesn't get as much coverage in the media or by the American soccer landscape that I think both of us believe that it deserves. That's right. Um, hopefully we can uh, go over some interesting things and let some people know what's going on in MLS. All right, let's get into it. Elliot, analytics and data analysis are largely underutilized by American soccer. We just talked about it, right? The American soccer media and public don't really rely on a lot of these statistics and information to influence their decisions, at least not across the board. Why do you think that is? Well, uh, soccer analytics is still pretty new. You know, it's still developing. And uh, really, you have just these varying degrees of buy-in across, you know, countries and clubs and everything. So, I mean, it's partially because it's new. And actually, I think American soccer is much more accepting of analytics than most other countries. You know, in the U.S., you know, we're very focused on numbers. You look at like baseball and football. Mm -hmm. You know, baseball's had detailed stats for 100 years. You know, they know the batting average of whatever player in 1902. (laughs) Uh, And uh, Americans are kind of geared into that. And also, you know, you look at fantasy sports, like everything is built on numbers there. Fantasy sports have totally taken off in the last few years. Um, so, you know, Americans are at least not afraid of putting value to things that happens in games, whereas maybe other countries, maybe a little less so. But, you know, um, analytics is still not widely adopted in soccer in general. And I think it's really because soccer is really hard to measure. Right. You know, it's, it's a hard game. Uh, you don't have defined events like baseball, you know, pitches and at bats where, you know, it's like a pitcher versus a batter or, you know, in football where you have plays, you can look at, you know, how did someone do on third down versus second down? Um, you know, we don't have that in soccer and then you don't have things like substitutions like in hockey or basketball. So you can get like things where, you know, you can say that a team played so much better with this person on the field or on the court versus another person because, you know, don't have, there's only three subs in soccer. So you don't get that kind of thing. And then also, you know, many of the traditional stats just aren't really that useful. You know, you look at possession percentage or something, it doesn't necessarily correlate well to, to winning, you know, number of shots can tell you some things or pass success, but overall, it's not exactly, it doesn't necessarily correspond to who's going to win the game. And we're starting to see more and more coaches now in modern soccer, both in Europe and in Major League Soccer, sort of push back against possession specifically. You mentioned it. It doesn't mean anything. Like, I'm sure Pepe said multiple times that he doesn't like tiki-taka. He doesn't want to possess just for the sake of possession. And that's one thing that I think analytics is starting to push through is this idea that these very basic fundamental statistics can give you a general idea of the game. But it's not the same, right? Possession doesn't give you this great insight like a lot of other more detailed statistics that are now sort of starting to be unveiled and slowly popularized are doing. 
Right. That's correct. You know, we talk about game states, you know, if you're winning or losing, you're going to want the ball more or less potentially. That's specific for possession, but you're correct. There are other things out there that could help us. So for today, Elliot and I are going to go through four advanced metrics to kind of help us get a better idea of what the American soccer analytics landscape is looking like and what sort of metrics are important for everyone to know about. Elliot, we're going to start with the most basic and probably the most common one, expected goals. Can you walk us through it? Yeah, so this is probably the most well-known of these advanced metrics that we're talking about. Now, you even see it now on broadcasts in MLS or Premier League. You know, they'll they'll put up so expected goals is also known as XG. So they'll put up XG stats. You know, you'll hear commenters in the game talk about it. You know, maybe at halftime or even at the end of the game, you always see these rants from these old British guys about how they don't. <laughs> but what it basically is is XG is the probability that a goal will be scored from a shot based upon where and how that shot was taken. And that's based upon a math model that's comprised of, you know, tens of thousands of shots from the past. And it's kind of, you know, you kind of make sense intuitively. So, you know, if, if a shot's taken like inside the six, there's a pretty good chance they're going to score that. But if, you know, someone's taking a pot shot from like 30 yards out, that's not going to, it's not very likely that's going to be scored. And so this, so XG kind of puts this quantitative value on that kind of shots. But one thing you got to know about it is we almost always overestimate the chance that a goal is going to be scored from a shot. So when a commenter says, you know, oh, he should have made that or should have scored that shot, he would have made it nine times out of 10. It's usually really not that. It's not nine times out of 10. Soccer is hard and scoring a goal is hard. So it might be a bit traumatic, but if you think back to, you know, the World Cup where Chris Wondolowski missed that shot against Belgium, everyone was saying, oh, he missed a sitter, you know. He should have scored that goal. You know, we would have won the game if we sure. didn't, if we, if we would have scored that goal. But, you know, that goal had about a 60% chance of being scored based upon the expected goals value of that. You know, which still means a pretty good chance. It's actually one of the better chances you're ever going to get in soccer. But it's still going to be missed four times out of ten. And actually, uh, we have a, there's an article on ASA by Jamin Moore who wrote all about this. It's like a 2,000-word article about that event uh, that happened in the World Cup. Uh, that's worth a, it's a really good read because you get this context of how XG works and that kind of thing. So we can look at XG as a single output of one single shot like that Wando miss from the World Cup, but you can also apply it in a lot of other ways, right? There are different ways that you can interpret this data and output it so that it can be, can be used for different things. Is that correct? Yeah. And, you know, one of the, the most popular ones is just looking at single game totals. So you add up all of the shots from the home team and the away team, and you can, you know, come up with, you know, who played better. So, you know, over the course of the game, you can get a sense which one had the better chances. And again, you kind of know this intuitively. There's always games where, you know, one team will seem to dominate, but they end up losing because, you know, they just couldn't finish uh, or convert a chance in that game. And the other team, you know, nicks a goal on a counterattack or something. Or, you know, a team could win an MLS Cup without putting a single shot on target. Um, you know, these things happen. And but with XG, we can kind of quantify that a bit. And that can be over a single game or it can be over a longer period of time. Like I've seen on ASA's website, they have season expected goals where you can go back and check out different teams and how they performed over the course of the year in terms of their ability to create chances, even if those numbers don't always reflect the actual Major League Soccer standings. Right. You always hear the term like the table doesn't lie, but it kind of does. You know, 30, <laughs> so 30 games or so is still not a lot. If you're thinking like sample sizes and things, ideally we'd have like, you know, every team play a thousand games or something. And then we could really say who the best team is. Soccer is very random. Um, so, you know, the best teams don't always rise at the top in the standings. You know, an example of this is, you know, last year with Chicago. So, you know, the fire missed the playoffs and then they, they basically jettisoned their whole team and their coach after the season. 
But by if you look at expected goal differentials, so that you know the the chances they created minus the chances that they gave up, you know they were one of the best teams since 2011, which is when the ASA database starts. Um, but they didn't make the playoffs, you know. But on the other hand, you have like a team like LAFC, who you know by far had the largest goal difference in MLS history, but also had the largest expected goal difference in our database. It can kind of go both ways, but um, over the season, it should help a little bit. And also the other thing is that. XG is actually a better, it's shown to be a better predictor of future goal difference and future points than things like actual goal differential um, because, again, this randomness. Since soccer is so random, if you can look at these underlying numbers, you can kind of tell who is playing well or not playing well, you know, despite what the point totals or the table may say. So, Elliot, you're saying that Chicago Fire fans should petition for seasons to be a thousand games long. Is that correct? Yeah, probably. Well, <laughs> Maybe not if you're a Chicago Fire fan. I don't know. Maybe they're they're extremely unlucky or something. But <laughs> ideally, if we could get a thousand game season, that would be probably good for analytics. I mean, I'd settle for any season right now, but that's a different that's topic. Um, sure. Another way that we can look at expected goals is is for individual players, right? We looked at individual shots, we looked at teams, we looked at seasons and individual games. But player specific expected goals can also be a helpful metric. Right. So, you know, you can look at, you know, how a player performs, say, over a season, you know, if they're creating these chances or not. And then also, you know, ideally you want to convert them, you know, but over over a long time. So we're talking, you know, hundreds of shots. The number of goals that a player scores almost always converges to their their XG numbers. You know, there are exceptions like Messi is an exception. He seems to break all of our metrics, but he doesn't play in MLS. So <laughs> that's OK. Over time, these these things kind of work out. Um, but, you know, typically your high scores are also going to have the highest XG. Last season, the, the top three for XG were also the top three for goals. So, you know, Vela, Zlatan, and Joseph Martinez, you know, as you would expect. But sometimes goals and XG don't match. So, again, if you look at last season, Hebert for NYCFC scored 15 goals, which is really great, especially since he only played like 1,700 minutes. Sure. But his XG was actually only 8.5. So he actually scored 6.5 goals more than you would expect based upon our models. So, you know, that's kind of overperforming. And if you look at someone who's underperforming, so you had Daniel Salloway for uh, SKC. So last season, he only scored one goal, you know, out of 6.2 XG that he put up total over the season. But if you look at 2018, he scored 11 goals on 8.2. So the season before, he kind of, he overperformed. And if you look at like the per 90 stats, um, his XG in 2019 is actually better than 2018, despite him only scoring that one goal. You know, sometimes things just don't go a player's way. Is there a way or are there ways that teams and clubs and organizations can use these individual player XG numbers to gain some sort of advantage, whether that's from a roster standpoint or from an on-field standpoint? Can can teams use these numbers to actually help them? Yeah, I mean, the, the easiest you know, or the most obvious thing is kind of looking at recruitment or, you know, whether or not you want to keep a player and that kind of thing. So, you know, so maybe if some European team came in with some huge uh, transfer fee for a bear, you might be more likely to say yes, because, you know, maybe he just had been overperforming his you know underlying stats for that season. And he's probably not going to replicate that uh, this year, although he started out scoring like a, like a hat trick in the CCL. Or That's whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. So maybe he will continue to do it. You kind of have that thing or, you know, maybe you need a winger and you saw that Salloway, you know, he had these really good underlying stats, but just couldn't quite finish last season. Maybe if SKC isn't paying attention to that, you could, you know, lowball them on a trade offer. You know, maybe able to buy low at this point on that some players. And I think it's like Brentford over in England. That's kind of how they've always done things. They're one of the leaders in uh, using analytics kind of historically. And they've, they've bought and sold players that way quite a bit. 
you're hedging your bets in a more educated fashion, right? You're, you're right. looking at these numbers and you're trying to, to get a better percentage chance of, of landing a player that you think can be effective for your team. Correct. Okay. Elliot, we've gone through XG. What's our next expected stat to go through today? Right. So the next thing here is expected assists. So one thing is XG is only look at that. XG is only looking at the shot. Um, and we, everybody knows that, you know, the shot is not the only thing that goes into creating a chance. There's lots of passes and things that go on before that. So expected assists or XA, the value of the shot that the shooter took gets assigned to the person who passed the ball to that shooter. Okay. Um, so, right. So if the player is, you know, consistently providing good service to his teammates, they're going to rack up their XA numbers. So, you know, last year, the leaders were, again, Carlos Vela, since he was ridiculous last <laughs> season, uh, Carlos Espinoza from San Jose and, and Car- Carlos Hill from the Revolution. That kind of checks out, you know, those players were their creators, you know, the, and they, that's, then they racked up the X, XAs. And then other things you can do is look at, you know, patterns of play. You know, you look at someone like Jack Price from Colorado. So basically all he did was take set pieces, it seemed, last season. Right. I think he put up 10 assists or something from... Crazy. But he, like, he almost had almost nothing from the run of play. So, you know, this can go into recruitment again. You know, if you want someone who's a playmaker during open play, Jack Price might not be your guy. But if, you know, you want someone who's a set piece specialist, you can kind of look at this. You can drill down and look at these different uh, patterns of play there. Also, with, with that Price example... That really tells you when you're coming into play Colorado, you want to avoid giving up free kicks at all costs, right? Knowing you're coming up against Jack Price, who has not just fluky numbers, but has good underlying numbers on set pieces. You want to avoid giving him those opportunities to create. Like you'd rather, you'd rather force him to break you down in open play than from set pieces, certainly as the opposing team. Correct. And this thing can be even set even further back. There's things called expected goal chains where you start assigning values to players even further back in the chain. So not just the guy who took the shot or the guy who assisted on that shot. Um, so that with that kind of thing, you can start looking at build up, you know, see if, if certain players are really important to a team's build up to create chances. If you have a deep lying playmaker or of some kind of ball playing center back, you know, they may be initiating attacks from deeper and you can start seeing that in the data. Uh, even though they're not actually creating shots themselves. So theoretically, using LAFC as an example, Eduard Atuesta as that deep-lying playmaker in midfield would have a much higher XG chain than he would necessarily expected assists because he's not always roaming higher up the field. He's typically operating from a deeper area, still contributing, right? But not not playing the final ball to lead to a shot. Yeah, looking at, you know, the, the stats, his his expected, so about 90% of the time, when he was involved in a goal chain or a shot chain, you know, when the shot is taken, he was not the final shooter or the uh, or the assister. So he's very highly involved, but doesn't take the shots. Okay, so we've gone through expected goals, expected assists. Elliot, what's next up? The next shot here is this is post shot XG. So we also call this, at least in the ASA, uh, XG keeper. So one of the criticisms about XG, and it's a, a good criticism is it doesn't take into account what happens, you know, after the shot is taken. You know, all of our XG models are basically just, um, we know kind of where the shot was taken, but we don't know anything about it afterwards. Post-shot XG look at, looks at all those conditions that were there with XG, you know, whether it was a headed shot or a cross or however the shot was taken. But then it also looks at where it actually ended up on the goal mouth. So something like a shot that's in the upper 90s is going to be something high. That's going to be very high value. If you can put a, if you can put the ball where the keeper can't usually get to it, then that's good. If it's down the middle, it's going to be lower. And if you just miss the goal completely, it's zero. So this actually can be very useful for actually looking at goalkeeper stats. 
So one of the issues is we don't really have good ways of looking at who's a good goalkeeper. So in this case, you can look at things that like the actual goals scored against a keeper minus their post-shot XG or XG keeper to see which players are prevent goals or maybe are letting in more goals than you'd expect. So if you look at and look at last season, Matt Turner was ridiculous. He basically saved his team half a goal per game when he was playing. And, you know, he only played about half the season because uh, for whatever reason, Brad Friedel didn't rate him. I think we can ask a lot of questions about Brad Friedel Elliott. We can. Um, but, you know, he was ridiculous. I mean, I think this is it's the best the best performance I think we have in our database. Um, and on the other hand, last season, Andre Blake, at least people think he's a pretty good goalkeeper. You know, mm-hmm. he was the number one pick and he's been the goalkeeper for Philadelphia for a while. But he was almost the opposite. He was letting in 0.4 goals per game more than expected for just an average keeper in, in MLS. And if you want to get into, you know, the whole goalkeeper of the year thing, you know, Vito Minoni won that. Uh, but he basically was an average keeper by this metric, which is one reason you see all these complaints about goalkeeper. <laughs> not, not that everyone's looking at, you know, ASA's models, but... Uh, I mean, but it seems like they should be, right? This seems like a revelation as far as statistics go. Obviously, there's more to playing goalkeeper than just shot stopping, right? We know that, especially now in modern soccer. But if we boil it down to just shot stopping, looking at the quality of the shot that's coming off from the from the shooter's foot and where it lands on the goal mouth and how effective a goalkeeper is at saving those shots, that seems borderline foolproof as far as evaluating shot stopping. It's baffling to me that we don't see better decisions from managers made with that in mind, right? Like, why is Matt Turner not starting every game for the revolution? That sort of thing. Like, that's crazy to me. I guess there are shortcomings in these models, but I don't think that's what's convincing coaches to, to not do to do these things. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I would advocate that they start looking at these things more. But uh, and it's not everything. You know, as you said, you can still claim the ball and goalkeepers do other things and stop shots. But shot stopping is probably the most important thing they do. All right, Elliot. On to our fourth and final metric. What you got? So next one here is expected passing. So this is you know similar to expected goals, except it's for passing. So we can look at you know where and how a pass was made and calculate the likelihood that it was going to be completed. So again, you kind of know this intuitively. If you're making a backwards pass in your defensive third, say like the the center mid to the center back, usually those are not under high pressure situations, and they're very highly likely to be completed. You know, as compared to, say, like a through ball from the top of the box and into the 18, those are tough passes to make. But now we can kind of quantify these things. Looking at players, it makes a huge difference when you look at expected passing metrics here. You know, oftentimes you'll see like some player was having a great game. They completed 90% of their passes, you know, which is great. But you need some context with that. If they're like a center back or something and they're just making passes, you know, out to the center mid or out to the wing they should be completing those passes. And if they're not completing 90%, that might be an issue. You and I could complete 90% of our passes, Elliot, if we stood really close together on the soccer field. Right. You know, if we just if we just stood like a couple yards away and just <laughs> pinned it back and forth and, you know, we were not playing Red Bulls or something, then we'd probably be okay. The next Sergio Busquets, both of us. I can see it now. Right. Right. If they're all lateral passes, it's going to be easy for a player. You know, so last year, you look at the the number the player who had the highest pass percentage was Darlington Nagby. You know he's known as a good passer, a player who keeps possession. Uh, so he 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 completed ninety two point six percent of his passes, which is great. Um, but he also led the league in expected pass percentage, which was actually eighty eight point four percent. So actually he still was a you know he's still a 
good passer. He completed 4% more passes than would be expected based upon where and how he took his passes. But, you know, he's he's a center mid um, and he's not asked to uh, play the final ball. And if you look at someone who's, you know, a center attacking midfielder, say like Lodero out in Seattle, his expected passing percentage based on the passes he made was 75.5%. So that's, you know, 10% less than what Menagvi would was expected to do. And actually, Lodero, his pass percentage was 73%, so he was about 2% less than you'd expect. So, you know, he's good, but maybe he's not as good as, as some of the Seattle people think. Just so that I make sure I'm understanding this properly, the higher the expected passing metric, the the more simple the passes are that they're completing, right? So it's it's less of a yeah. risk. When Nagmi is playing 88% of his expected passes, when he's when he has that metric, that means that his passes relative to a lot of other players are going to be more simple because, as you said, he's not required to thread that through ball in behind the back line like an attacking midfielder like Ladera would be. Correct. And, you know, we can look at this for all of the players and you can, you know, you can look at them, see which ones are actually passing or are completing more passes than would be expected. And, you know, that gives you a little bit more confidence that maybe this guy's actually a good passer, not just someone who makes easy passes. So that's looking at expected passes for players. Can we also do that for teams? Like, can we look, can we zoom out a little bit more and look at it on a team by team basis? Yeah. So, um, and one of the ways this can be really useful is kind of looking at defense. So we don't have a lot of good defensive metrics uh, with analytics just because things are so geared towards offensive stuff. And it's easy to, to measure shots and things, less easier to measure defensive positioning. And we can talk about that a little bit later. But, you know, when you look at expected pass in the team context, you can see, you know, which teams prevented their opponents from completing their passes. So, you know, when you think of pressing teams in MLS, Joe, like, who do you think of? I mean, I think of the Red Bulls first and foremost, kind of always. Right. So good. <laughs> um, because they led the league in, 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 in allowing a lower completed percentage or completion percentage than would it be expected. Hmm. So they would, they let in basically 3% fewer passes were completed than would be expected by the model just because of their press. And the Red Bulls always mess up all of our metrics because the way they play is so different. Um, but this is actually down quite a bit from their heyday under Jesse Marsh, where it was like, four or five percent. So you can kind of actually see that as well. You know, over time, you can look at how these things change. But also, um, they underperform the most offensively. You know, again, it's probably back to their playing style. The way Red Bulls play is they're always going forward as fast as they can. You know, they don't play the the lateral or the the, uh, backwards passes nearly as much as other teams. So they don't have these higher completion rates because they do these, you know, high risk kind of things that we may not be fully capturing in our models. And then, of course, the next worst team was Cincinnati who I don't think, you know, maybe they're just bad passers because <laughs> we're very good. That's what I was going to ask, because how do you tell if a team just is a bad passing team or if there's something stylistically that they're doing that influences those numbers? And I guess ultimately the answer might be the eye test can come in handy in situations like that because you can watch them to see how they're playing, how they're defending, and if that actually has an impact on their passing style. Right. And that's that's the thing with all of these statistics and, and models, you know, you need to see if they make sense. Um, you guys still have to watch the games. And, you know, the, the cliche is, you know, we don't play the games on spreadsheets, which is, but it's true. But spreadsheets can help us learn more about the game. I want a t-shirt with that on it. I think ASA should make one of those. I'd buy it for sure. Um, Elliot, we've talked about XG, XA, post shot XG or keeper expected goals and then expected passing. I think it's time to move on to more of a general topic. We've looked at these individual statistics, but how do we look at data within the context of Major League Soccer? It's obviously difficult to determine, you know, without being on the inside of the league, 
But from what you know about data usage in MLS, Elliot, how do you think the league is doing on the data collection and analysis front? Because we can talk about it, the two of us, but that doesn't mean necessarily that Major League Soccer teams are actually taking advantage. So let's let's separate the data collection and the analysis. So detailed in-game data collection is typically done by companies, companies like Opta, um, who will track every event in the game. You know, there is teams will do things themselves. Usually they're kind of larger picture things. Like if they see something good happen, they'll, they'll mark it at that timestamp and then they can go back and look at it on video later. But the data collection, again, is done mostly by, by companies. And that actually comes in a couple different types. Um, there's event data and tracking data. Everything that we talked about earlier was built on event data, which is basically people going in and manually logging every action that happens during a game. If a pass happened, they tell you where it happened, or where it started, where it went to, who made the pass, who who is the receiver of the pass, uh, whether it was a through ball or a long ball or things like that. Um, and that happens for tackles, it happens for shots, fouls, all of those things are manually recorded by people. So maybe they have some computers help with computer vision and things. AI is what they'll call it, even though it's not quite artificial intelligence. But all of those things are tracked manually. Earlier this year, a company called Stats Perform was named the exclusive data partner for MLS and U.S. soccer. So when we're talking about data collection, is Stats Perform the company responsible for doing that? Yeah, so Stats Perform is who owns Opta, which is kind of the big name data company who generates uh, event data. You know, again, these each of these actions that happen in a game for, you know, dozens of leagues around the world. So, you know, all of this data is collected for any league you can almost think about. Um, but there are other companies that do it, and they also collect MLS data. Um, so things like companies like StatsBomb or Instat, Scout, Ortec, you may or may not have heard of some of these. Um, some of them are a little more esoteric. But it's actually my understanding that this Opta deal, MLS and U.S. soccer, it's mostly about betting. Hmm. So, you know, there was a Supreme Court case last year, a couple years ago, where they legalized betting like everywhere in the country. Um, so things are kind of taking off in that regard. So, you know, if you want to place a bet and you can do this, apparently, like what time the first corner kick is going to be taken in the game, they they produce betting lines on that kind of thing. And Opta is going to be the one who actually decides these things. So I think that's kind of where the official partnership comes from, um, because Opta has been collecting that data for MLS for years, you know, since at least 2011, maybe before that. But, you know, it's not to say that it's not going to have an effect on the sporting side either. From what I've heard MLS teams actually get access to all of this data now at no additional charge. I know in the past they, has, they used to have to pay for this Opta data or the stat perform data, which is somewhere in like the tens of thousands of dollars per year, hmm. depending on how many leads you get and, and things like that. And I know there were at least a, few, a handful of MLS teams that didn't pay for this data before. So now they're going to be getting it. Um, whether they're going to do anything with, anything with it, I don't know, but it can't hurt that they're getting it. So that's event data, right? Opta's tracking this event data. You talked about tracking data as well. Where is that coming from? Another deal that MLS announced in the offseason, I think just a couple days before the 2020 season actually started, was a deal with Second Spectrum who would collect tracking data. And so what tracking data is, is they, they actually set up cameras, like eight or 11, multiple cameras basically in all of the stadiums. And then within that, they can then start seeing where every player is on the field 25 times every second. So it's every player, the ball, and the refs. So now we kind of have, you kind of think about that little radar view in FIFA that's down in the middle, the mm -hmm. bottom of the screen. We're going to get that view for everything, all the MLS games. So you can get things like 
you know, how far a player ran, you know, the kind of simple things, we'll just call them simple. I mean, how far they ran, how fast they went, the speed of passes, speeds of shots, things like that. And MLS actually was starting to show some of this a little bit on their website. They had a couple, they had a few advanced or enhanced highlights, I think is what they called them. So, you know, they would show like the, the bubbles around players and they'd track them and you could see distance between players and things like that, you know, how fast shots went. So, yeah, I think those are on the website and some of the MLS digital people tweeted some of them. So that's going to be interesting stuff going forward, especially for broadcast in that regard. But again, this is all can be used for analytics. So all these things that we couldn't see with event data, things like defensive positioning or if someone makes an off the ball run, we can now start to kind of see these things within the tracking data that you couldn't see them before. So we can do potentially a whole lot more analytics with this stuff. But this is still really early. I think Premier League started doing this a couple years ago. And this data is really hard to get. And hopefully we'll start seeing lots of things. Barcelona is doing some good work with it. Um, you can go on Twitter and search the Barcelona uh, Innovation Hub. And they have some really cool stuff looking at heat maps of players and where they should have passed the ball, if they did it or didn't, and things like that. But it's still going to be a few years before this is um, going to be widely used in any kind of club setting, especially in MLS. So it's possible that giving a few years of time before this, but we could see a metric that has some sort of calculation for how players get into and exploit space. If we're looking at the tracking data from these camera angles that allow us to see the full field and to see the movement much more than we get on traditional broadcast cameras, it is theoretically possible that we could start seeing more and more advanced metrics for not just the -the on-the-ball event data, but off-ball things like movement or like changing rotations, things that coaches will definitely want to have access to. Exactly. Or, you know, the easy thing is those could maybe flag, you could like detect those things in the data and flag them for the coaches to go look at the video later. You know, that could save lots. I know lots of performance analysts in MLS and alt clubs, you know, they spend a lot of time just watching the video and trying to figure out when these things happened. But, you know, if you could point them out, say, hey, go look here, that could save them at least a lot of time. I wonder if that is part of the problem for a lot of Major League Soccer staffs is, is maybe if they're not using data in the way that we think they should as outside observers. Maybe it's because they don't want to allocate the time and the resources that it takes to get those events, get that tracking information out from the data to actually be able to apply it. So Elliot, like you're saying, if we make it simpler for them, then I imagine that it would help them to develop their own personal coaching staff techniques to make that data more applicable. Right. And, you know, that's a whole other thing that as someone outside of clubs, outside of a club, I don't know exactly how that's all happening. But, you know, it is happening. There is there is communication between coaches and and the, the data analysts and those kind of things. But um, that's I know that's a big issue that all the analytics community is, is working on, how to translate this stuff to something that is usable. From what you know about the, the state of the league in terms of analytics, are there specific teams in the league that you see using data more effectively or that that you've noticed allocate more resources to data than other teams do? Yeah, so there's definitely differences. Um, you know, one thing is no, no MLS team has some kind of like huge department working on this stuff. Not like Liverpool, who's hired like five or six PhDs in physics to, to do all of this stuff. You know, for MLS, it's like at most a couple of people doing this or just one person. Um, sometimes there isn't even a specific person for a team that's working on data analysis on their own. Maybe they are splitting time with sports science, fitness stuff and that kind of thing like that. Or just teams aren't doing any of it. And again, we don't know everything that's going on behind the scenes. And maybe there's things that we just, there, some team is very secretive and we don't, I don't think that's the case in MLS. <laughs> um, 
But, you know, there are a couple of teams that do stand out, and that's, you know, Seattle and Toronto. So both Seattle and Toronto hired people with extensive backgrounds about five years ago or so. So there's Ravi Ramineni at Seattle. So he actually came from Microsoft um, prior to be, being hired by the Sounders. And then Devin Pluler at Toronto, who actually came from Opta, which is Reform, who's you know now the official data provider for MLS, who did lots of good data science work with Opta. Um, and they've been there for a while. And you know, you'll see them give talks at these sports analytics conference like Sloan, um, which you've probably heard of. It's the you know the biggest um, analytics conference around. You know, they're they're working with they've been working with this tracking data that has now been collected by MLS for actually only two games. It's only two games into the season. Um, <laughs> but other companies have been producing it and they've been they've been using it. Um so they've been talking about this tracking data for a couple years now. So they kind of have this leg up over maybe some other teams. And, you know, I don't want to say that correlation is causation here, but, you know, three of the last four MLS Cups have been Seattle and Toronto, and they just happen to also have probably the best analytics set up. So maybe there's something there. Maybe MLS teams should uh, look into this and start hiring some other people who do these things. Um, but other teams are also doing this. You know, most of the MLS teams now do have a data analyst. I don't know exactly what all of them are doing, but they do have them. But again, the real issue here is kind of institutional buy-in. If you have a data analyst and your coach or your GM doesn't really care for it and they're just, they just said, oh, we need to have a data analyst just to have one. If you can't get a buy-in from people who are actually making the decisions for, you know, who to, who to recruit for your team or how a team plays, then, you know, the analy- analytics may not be that useful for you. You could have the best, the best team of guys working on this, but if the coach doesn't want to use any of the data, um, then that won't help you. Um, so. In that, especially we don't know what's going on in MLS clubs. You don't know how the GMs think or how the coaches think um, necessarily. I mean, there has to be this balance, right? And that's exactly what you're hitting at. If you have a great analytics department, you need people higher up in the organization that are going to buy into that and believe in that to allow you to take those insights and actually institute them into what we're seeing on the field. And if you have a general manager or a coach who's very high on that, but don't have the department to back their desire for data, then you're no better off than you were the other way around. I think that's something interesting to monitor as the league progresses, seeing how we see the integration between coaches, front office, and the analytics departments that these teams have and that they're growing. Will we see more collaboration and will we see an improved product on the field for the teams that most buy into that? Right. Hopefully we will. But, you know, we, we do have one kind of data point here. So last September, Sean Davis from the Red Bulls actually was on the American, American Soccer Analysis podcast. So uh, he actually emailed. American soccer analysts and soccer analysis and, you know, asked, Hey, do you have some, some stuff? And, uh, that eventually led him to, to the podcast, but he was talking about how Jesse Marsh would actually drop off articles that, that were written on American soccer analysis, um, at players lockers. Um, hmm. so, you know, it was one specific article by Chuck Hi Ho about New York Red Bulls pressing. And apparently he printed out and left it for a couple of players at their locker. I don't think that's common. <laughs> I don't know if that has ever actually happened with anyone else in MLS, maybe. Um, but it's kind of encouraging that that has happened. You know, but on the other hand, you know, I've heard that some MLS coaches have never heard of XG, which is also, you know, kind of concerning or are pretty dismissive of these things. So, you know, it's a mixed bag. And again, this is all kind of anecdotal stuff, but it would be really cool to know what is going on. You know, how is this informing coaching decisions and that kind of thing? Absolutely. Because you talked earlier about Eber and his expected goals metric and how that may or may not influence a potential sale. This is not something that's actually happening, but the idea of a club coming in and NYCFC being a little bit more willing to sell him just because they've seen his underlying numbers, seeing that he's overperforming 
for a specific set of games. That's one way that analytics can allow organizations to make better, more well-informed decisions. But this Sean Davis example, Elliot, is, a, is another perfect one, right? Looking at Jesse Marsh and how a coach can be in position to influence team-wide decision-making and individual player decision-making within an analytical context, that's huge, right? Getting coaches that are bought in, taking advantage of all their resources, not just the opt-to-data that they have access to or that they may or may not have to pay for as an individual team, but also looking around the analytics community, looking at the good work that you guys are doing that's legitimately changing the analytics landscape, taking advantage of all of those things and inputting them into their squads. That's huge. And I think if we're going to see Major League Soccer improve, that has to be a huge part of it. I completely agree. (laughs) (laughs) Elliot, is there anything before I let you go and plug all of your own social media and American soccer analysis one last time? Is there anything that you think is helpful for the general public to know about analytics in soccer or have we covered it pretty well here? So I think this is a good base, and actually I think it's further than what you normally see in the media. So, you know, XG is about as far as it goes. You know, introduce XA and post-shot XG and um, expected passing, which you're not going to see those last three basically in the media yet. Hopefully one day we will when uh, when things progress here. Um, but, you know, I, I think if you're interested in this stuff, go to AmericanSoccerAnalysis.com. We have explainers for XG and we have, you know, articles on all of these things that we've talked about, you know, that go in much more depth than we've gone here. We have a lot more, even more advanced things that we're not going to talk about at this time. <laughs> um, but, you know, we're always trying to, you know, we're very active on, we have very active Slack where we, we throw ideas at each other all the time. Joe's seen it. I have. It's great. So there's things in the pipeline that are coming. There's other things we've already published. So yeah, if you're interested, go, go see that. Um, follow American Soccer Analysis on Twitter. It's at Analysis Evolved. And all of the guys from American Soccer Analysis, there's a lot of guys who are pretty active on Twitter, you know, posting things. People are focused on their, their favorite teams. On Twitter, I post about MLS in general and then mainly the Columbus crew. That's my team. I grew up in Columbus. Then you can find me at E.T. McKinley on Twitter um, and all the other guys and give us a follow. Fantastic. Elliot, thank you so much for all of your insight and for taking the time to talk with me today. I truly appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me on. 